Well, good morning, church family, and so glad you're here. This is part five of a series that we are in called The Church Defined as we're looking through the book of Titus. So today's passage comes from Titus, the book of Titus, chapter two, verses four through eight. So if you have your Bible, you want to go ahead and turn there uh, this morning. If you want to follow along on your phone in the Oakwood app, you're welcome to do so. There's also a sermon outline in the bulletin, has a, a way for you to engage there, fill in the blank. So uh, the main thing this morning is we want you to hear from the Word of God. We want you to engage the Word of God and hear from Him this morning. As we're reflecting on, on, on this, this passage this week and thinking about it, a, a question came to my mind, thinking about the future of God's church here at Oakwood. And the question I want to pose to you this morning, just to get your mind kind of thinking in this direction, is what will Oakwood Christian Church look like in 10 years? 10 years from now, what might look different at our church? Now, I'm not talking about the aesthetics of the church, like, oh, the, you know, the building might be different, or we didn't remodel here and upgrade here. I'm talking about the people. I'm talking about the church. The gathering of the saints here at Oakwood. How might it look different 10 years from now. If we're looking 10 years into the future, how might there be spiritual growth in lives? How might there be, you know, paint, paint a picture in your mind of like, what is the desired future that God has for our church? And then what part or what role do I play in that? What has God called me to do in that time? Now, you know if you've been uh, following along with us in this series for the last several weeks, uh, that last week we talked uh, specifically to the older men and the older women. And the challenge last week was that they are supposed to mentor and to teach the younger men and the younger women kind of the ways of the faith. And so we took that text last week about the challenge to them and how they're to live how they're to exalt God's, God in their lives. And then we got to this week where this week we're actually going to see what they are to be passing on to that next generation of believers. Because whether you want to believe it or not, if you think about it, Christianity is always just one generation from extinction. Because if the generation ahead of us doesn't pass that faith to the next generation, Christianity may cease to exist. And we see that in the Bible, God has a plan for this. That those of us that are older, those of us that are more mature in the faith, would actually live our lives in such a way and dedicate ourselves to Christian service in such a way that it will affect the generation coming behind us and even reach further into the generation coming behind them. So wherever you find yourself on that journey this morning, I wanted to encourage you to be a participant in ministry. Because one of the best ways we can prepare God's church for the future is to mentor and mature Christians today. To start today to mature the body of Christ so that we can be fully devoted and fully developed to make great kingdom impact. On that note, I want to begin this morning by, by sharing... Uh, Luke chapter 14, verses 28 through 31. Uh, just because this is a passage uh, Jesus was talking to the disciples and to the crowds. And he was saying, hey, we got to count the cost of discipleship. we got to plan ahead. God honors that. Listen to this. It says in Luke 14, 28, it says, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, well, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or 
Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? You see, what Jesus was saying there is, is it's good to plan ahead. It's good to think ahead. It's good to prepare for the future and to count the cost. And that's what I want us to do as we read this passage this morning and capture the heart of the Apostle Paul. Remember, he's, he's teaching, he's writing this letter to Titus. That's what we're reading. And Titus is helping lead these young churches at Crete. Let's read the text this morning, Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. It says this. Well, actually, let's go back to verse 1, just to kind of lay the foundation of what we read about the older men and the older women last week. Let's, let's, let's start there, verse 1 of chapter 2. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate and worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. And likewise, you teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. And then here's the text for today. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. And similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. And in your teaching, show integrity and seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. A good reminder after reading that section of scripture there is just that we're going to be opposed, folks. When you teach the truth of God's word, when you live it out, you are going against the world, you're going against the culture, and you're going against people sometimes who love their sin. And because of that, you're going to feel opposed, you're going to feel opposition. You're going to live in some ways that are counterculture to the world. The culture says, hey, you need to live your life this way, you need to operate your house this way. And God says, wait, 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 wait. I've got a plan for your life as well. But so many times, God's plan it contradicts the culture. And so we need to make a choice that we <laughs> read it at the very beginning of this series, to stand firm in God's truth all the way. So let's talk about verses 4 through 8 today. The first thing is this, that the older women are to teach and model several things to the younger women. Now it begins there um, in verse 4 with the word urge. It says that they, it was just talking about the older women before, and then it says, then they can urge the younger women. That word urge there means to exhort. It also means to disciple. That those older women are actually called to exhort, to urge, to disciple the younger ladies in several different areas in that list. And that's what we're going to talk about. The first one is this. It's they are to love their husbands and their children. There in verse 4, right after that, it says to love their husbands and their children. Today, with social media and pop culture, with, with what's on television in, in the way of sitcoms and television shows, and maybe even more accurately portrayed in docudramas and document series, and even in the movies coming out of Hollywood, you're constantly getting a message. And the message is targeting young women with this. Your husband is stupid and a dumb oaf, and he's in the way, and your children are in the way of your best life. And that's what we're getting bombarded with. 
Now, you may not even realize it. There's these subtleties to it. But if you watch, if you listen, you'll hear those messages coming through loud and clear. Your husband is dumb and your children are in your way. And so you need to live life to the full. And it needs to be outside of those relationships. But here in the scripture, Titus is urging these older women to teach and mentor and model these things to the younger women to love and to value the relationships in their home. To love their husbands and to love their children and to value those relationships. The world says to diminish those relationships, that they're not important. And yet God says, no, these are very, very important relationships. That you should find joy and fulfillment with your husband and with your children. And then it goes on with the list after that. It says to love their husbands and children. In verse 5 at the beginning, it says to be self-controlled and pure. Be self-controlled and pure. You see, children need their mother to set consistent spiritual tone in the home. Especially when mom's at home more than dad. Moms, you have so much influence in the life of your children. We had a parenting seminar here last Sunday night. If you missed it, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip, but man, you missed it. It was awesome. It was, it was absolutely incredible. One of the things they had mentioned in there is they were talking about the discipleship journey of children from the time that they're infants all the way through till they're in high school and even into young adulthood. And as they were talking about those things, they were talking about these markers and these milestones and, and scripture and spiritual concepts being taught to children in the home. We were having a staff meeting this week, and our children's ministry staff were lamenting the amount of time that you get to spend with your kids versus the time that they get to spend with your kids. Because the facts are this. If you bring your kids with 100% attendance to every church service this year, and they get to be discipled in our children's ministry, that's 52 hours max. If they come on Wednesday nights, which we offer Wednesday night discipleship for kids during the school year, then you can add about another 36 to 40 hours of time there. So the maximum that you could have with your children and children's ministry, maybe 90 to 100 hours a year. Now, of course, if you send them to church camp in the summer, we've told you that before. I mean, they might get them for 80 or 90 hours that week. Uh, man, that's like a whole year of instruction, right? That's why church camp is so important. But by and large, if you just brought them, and, and, and that's saying that you're here every Sunday every Wednesday that that opportunity is before you. And some people, just being honest, don't make it every time. But if you did, that's, how, that's the maximum amount of time that our children's ministry would have to pour into your kids. And that's why we believe that partnering with families and parents is so important. Because there's 168 hours in the week. And if your family sleeps at night, well, you can subtract those hours. Some of you have kids that are of school age, so you can subtract those hours out. But you have so much more hours of influence in your kid's life. Usually, sometimes about somewhere between 45 and 60 waking hours a week where you can actually spend time as family, spend time with your kids. It may be at activities, it may be at school functions, it may be here and there and yonder, but you have way more spiritual influence. You get hundreds and thousands of hours that God's church does not get. And so it's not good enough for you as a parent to just say, here, I hope you get it. 
we're going to attend, well, you know, statistically it's saying, you know, 1.6 times per month is good church attendance today. So the 1.6 times a month we make it to, to church here, I hope they teach you about Jesus. I hope you'll find a saving relationship with Jesus. I hope you'll be discipled. You grow in Jesus. Parents, you have so much more time and so much more influence in your kids' lives. And mothers, you have so much influence in your kids' lives. Those kids that are in your home look up to you, and you set the tone in your home to be self-controlled and spiritually pure and to be spiritually minded about these things. You see, the younger ladies are called to model self-control and purity in their homes. Why? Because the world is wild and impure. That's the value of the culture. Ladies don't act like young ladies anymore. And that's amazing how text written 2,000 years ago can be so applicable to our lives today. But that's the living and active Word of God. And the older women are called to encourage and model those things to the younger woman, to be self-controlled and pure. The next part was to put their families first. It says to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home. To be busy at home. Now, that, that, some people read that and they say, oh, you're talking about being a busybody at home. It just, you know, just keeps, keeps the home. No, it's, it's saying put your family first. Being busy at home was this idea in the culture of keeping and working the home and managing the domestic affairs of the home. Why? Because traditionally, the dads and the fathers were out at work during the day, and they were at home with the kids. Now, I know sometimes because of financial feasibility and stuff, that's not exactly the way it works. And maybe even if we wanted to, we can't make it work sometimes. But there's an interesting trend that I read online that statistics are moving this direction today toward more Christian mothers staying at home than going into the workforce. Unless it absolutely necessitates it, most Christian young mothers want to be home with their children children. I think that's an encouraging thing. You get even more hours with your kids. You get even more time to teach and develop your kids. And I know that some of you older ladies are saying, well, well, okay, I hear that. I'm supposed to teach. I'm supposed to model that, but how can I help? Well, first of all, encourage them with your words and maybe lend a helping hand. Maybe make them a meal or teach them how to cook. Maybe you can help pitch in and help them clean. Maybe it's just babysitting every once in a while and saying, hey, Tell you what, this week when you go to the grocery store, can I keep your kids while you go to the store? Can I, can I just do that for you for a couple hours? I mean, what an encouragement that is. But the main thing is to build relationships with these young ladies and help model and teach them to put their families first. Older ladies, they can learn from your good and your bad experiences if you're willing to build a relationship and share. The next part, it talks about being kind. It says to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind. We are called to exemplify kindness. These young ladies are challenged to exemplify kindness because, again, our world is a very unkind place. You are setting the tone for positivity and kindness in the home and how you treat people. And you are modeling that not only for your kids but also for your husband. It is wonderful to have a loving mother that will show acts of kindness, that will speak words of kindness that build up others according to their need. You see, the culture teaches young women to be sarcastic and mean-spirited. Isn't it a shame that all of us are probably familiar with the term today, mean girls? 
That from the time they're in their young teenage, we train them to be mean. Because, you know, it's a dog-eat-dog world, and we got to train up our young ladies to be tough and rough. And, but that's, again, going against Scripture. When it's saying, hey, these young moms and these young ladies in their houses are to be exemplifying for everyone, but especially for those kids that are with their mom, is to not be sarcastic and mean-spirited and tough and to teach to be mean, but to actually exemplify kindness. Because the fact is, all of us like to be treated with kindness. And then the next part in verse 5, after it says to be kind, it says also to be subject to their husbands. They're called to be submissive to your husband. The young, these young ladies are to be taught by the older ladies to be submissive to your husband. Now, this is something that's super counterculture today, right? I mean, this is something that, you know, it goes against the fiber of the culture. I want to read a couple of passages to you. Uh, first one being Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. It says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of his church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So many times people read scriptures like that and they say, oh man, it's diminishing the role of, of a woman. It's diminishing who they are in Christ Jesus. But that's actually not the truth. We're just simply talking about positions about how God designed the family to operate. God has a plan for the family because he invented families in the Bible. You know, it is football season. And I think I would be remiss not to do some kind of an illustration for football. So here we go. If you have a football team, there are different positions on the football team. And you could say, well, hey, this, this position is really important. If you were to say the most important position on the football field is the quarterback. You know, they're the guys that get paid the most and the guys that get protected the most because now you can't tackle them. I didn't know if you knew that in tackle football. You cannot tackle the quarterback. Um, well, you just have to kind of, you kind of have to hug them and lay them down. Okay, that's, that's how you tackle them today. Um, yeah. And uh, you, you, but it's an important position, right? Because what happens is the quarterback calls the plays in the huddle. So you have the team there, and they're all circled up, and you have all of these players in all these different positions. you got the wide receivers. They're the ones that go down the field, and they catch the ball that, that he throws to them. you got the running backs. Sometimes they catch balls out of the backfield, but a lot of times they're handed the ball, and they're there to run it forward. And you think, wow, those are great positions. you got the quarterbacks and the wide receivers. you got the running backs. But then there's this thing called the offensive line. They're the big guys, the big strong guys that are in front of the quarterback. You know if you ask any quarterback what position they had to fill on their offensive team, you know what they're going to say every time? The O-line, the people in the trenches. They're making the way, protecting that quarterback. But when that quarterback is in the huddle, that quarterback is calling the shots. He's calling the plays. In the NFL, if you didn't know this, in the helmets, they have a little hearing device that's in there by their ear pads. A lot of times when the crowds are really loud, you'll, you'll see them kind of go like this over their ear holes in their helmets. It's because they're trying to hear the play. After they hear the play, they get in the huddle and they call, they call the play and they tell them, hey, we're going to move on two, we're going to move on three, or we're going to go on set or whatever. And so they are getting the team organized and they're getting everything arranged. They are the quarterback. But if the quarterback has no offensive line, can the quarterback be successful? No. All of those positions are equally important. They're just all different. And so it is in God's family. 
That God said, you know what? I am going to make the man the quarterback in the family. I want him to call the plays. I want him to call the shots. And I want the people on the team to get on the same page with the quarterback. Now, we know, if we're being honest, it doesn't always work that way, does it? That sometimes dads are passive or absent or not interested in running the plays for their family. And sometimes, I know, even some of you young adult women, that you come and say, you know what? I'm the one that has to call the plays. In fact, my family's here at church today because of me, because he's not here. And so I'm not saying this, this works perfectly, but God has a plan and a design, and the design is that the dad, the father, the head of the household, would be the quarterback, and he'd call the plays. Now, sometimes what that means for younger ladies is they have to operate in humility, but I want to encourage you with this, ladies. Even when there's positions in your family where you feel like, I'm better than my husband at this. It's best not to usurp his authority in the spirit of humility in Christ because Jesus, the Son of God, who is perfect in every way, he submitted himself to his parents. He also submitted himself to earthly authorities, even though you know and I know he was much greater than they were. But he understood position and God's plan as well. I think young, young mothers today and young ladies need a lot of encouragement in this area because they are barraged with messages from the culture telling them that just the opposite of the Bible is true. That they are somehow diminished because of their role in being submissive to their husband. And I'm telling you what, these young ladies need older women mentoring by their examples and encouraging them by their words and by their deeds to be submissive to their husbands doesn't mean that they're a doormat or they're somehow diminished in God's eyes or in the eyes of the culture. But it means they actually have greater value in God's plan. I also want to share 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6, through 6, it says this. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Did you catch that? God might be, God might be having this plan working in the background on your faithfulness to him. We'll continue. Without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of the inner self, the unfading beauty of, listen to these qualities, a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this, ladies, is how the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah. He's giving us an example here. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and you do not give way to fear. The fear that I don't matter. The fear that says I'm diminished in my role. The fear that I'm not important to the kingdom of God. And this leads us right into the last thing, the last part of verse 5. Is that young ladies are called to live a countercultural womanhood. All to the glory of God. 
to live a counterculture womanhood all to the glory of God. Look how it ends there in verse 5. It says, so that no one will malign the word of God. That word malign means to dishonor the word of God. That no one would dishonor God's word by the way you're living your life because your life is lining up with God's example in Scripture. And over and over again, I think young women who live their lives and operate their homes this way will over and over and over again see unbelievers from the world going, wow, dude, you know what? I want a house like that. I want a home. I want a home like that. You know, I want a marriage. I want a marriage like that. Man, did you, did you see their kids? I'd love for our kids to, to be learning respect like that. And in doing so, you're an example to the world. A, a great testimony of God's goodness. Now let me let you know a little bit, young men and husbands, how you can help with this. Young ladies have way less harder time being submissive to a husband that will love his wife and put her first. And will treat her with the utmost dignity and respect, including that you would put her needs before your own. Ladies, do you have a hard time following a guy like that? Not, not as much, huh? Live countercultural womanhood all to the glory of God. And I'm telling you what, in this culture, you're going to stand out. You're going to stand out. Matthew 5, 16, you remember when Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds. And do what? They praise your Father in heaven. All for the glory of God. Then the next part in the scripture, in verse 6, it talks about how the older men are to teach and mentor the younger men. In verse 6. Now when you read this, you're like, wow, the guys didn't get as much here. But it starts with this word, similarly. It could be also translated as likewise. And if you notice in this section of scripture... It kind of went out of order. It was the older men need to do this, and the older women need to do this, and then the younger women need to do this, and then it ends with the younger men, but it's saying, hey, similarly, likewise, based on everything that we've said here, all of these qualities and all these characteristics need to be on the increase in our lives. And then it says after that, likewise, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Here it is again. We've heard self-controlled at the beginning of Titus when it was talking about elders, that elders are to be self-controlled. We then heard it for the older men. Then we heard it for the older women. Then we heard it for the younger women, and now we're hearing it for the younger men. That likewise, hey, be self-controlled. Are we seeing a theme here? Does self-control seem to be an issue in Titus to those Christians at Crete in the early churches there? Yes. Does that seem to be a part of the problem for us today? Yes. That we bring self-control to our life when we bring it under the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you struggle with some of these things, it might be a lordship issue. That we need to help them mature in self-control. Older guys, help the younger men. Help them mature in the area of self-control. In verse 6, it says to encourage young men to be self-controlled. I hate it when I see this, but many men who have potential to be great leaders seem to struggle in maturity 
and in the area specifically of self-control. They can ruin their influence for years ahead because of the immature choices that they make in their younger years. The author and teacher Albert Moeller, amongst several other authors and teachers, have written about something they call perpetual boyhood of young men today. That the guys just aren't growing up and accepting responsibility. Now, to the culture of the Jews back in Bible times, you need to understand where they were operating in their mindset. They had this, this ceremony they went through, the young Jewish boys called Bar Mitzvah. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but a lot of times, even if you don't know Jewish culture, you've probably heard of, oh, he's going through his bar mitzvah. You've, you've heard of that. It was a ceremony that happened for young Jewish boys at the age of 13, and it was their rite of passage into manhood. What's interesting about it is all of the spiritual responsibilities of the culture in Judaism was put upon those boys at 13 years old. To the point that they had these requirements that, hey, to, have, uh, to hold a prayer service according to our strict sec section of laws here in Judaism, that there had to be 10 men present. At 13, after they'd been through their bar mitzvah, they were now considered to be one of those men. That they would have a quorum to have a prayer time, to have a prayer service, because they would have a 13-year-old boy there. At 14, sometimes these boys, men, were married. By 16, most were married, and by 18, almost everybody was married. That was the culture. Can you imagine the immense pressure and maturity that these young men had to have at 13 years old? But today, we have a psychological term for this, and in, in, in the young men that struggle with it, they call it adolescence. And it's plaguing some young men even into their 30s, that we are not maturing in the area of self-control and that's why I think it starts here by just saying hey encourage these young men in the area of self-control encourage them not to just act out and to be selfish and not just to seek these worldly things these worldly pursuits encourage them to be good fathers and dads engaged in their home and not to be just always out and absentee fathers out in the culture doing their own thing encourage them to be good husbands encourage them to be self-controlled in all areas of their life and all of their their desires in their heart help them to mature and be self-controlled. And then in the next part there, at the beginning of verse 7, it says, In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. We need to encourage them by your example, older men, of doing the right thing with consistency. To do what is good. Encourage them by your example of doing the right thing with consistency. Notice how it begins in verse 7. It says, in everything. Everything? Did he mean that? What did he say? In everything. What does that mean? In every area of life. Teach them to do the right thing. To do good with consistency. And that we would be showing and modeling that by our example. Those who are more mature and further down in the faith. To understand. You know, sometimes we say, oh, you're supposed to do good. Do good. It sounds so Pollyanna, so soft. But that's what. God desires for us. A changed life and a changed heart through the power of Jesus Christ can do good and can be good and can choose to make right, consistent choices with their life to lead not only themselves but their families, to lead them well in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. And then it ends this way. In your teaching, show integrity and seriousness and soundness of speech 
that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. It's talking there about this consistency in the Christian walk. It says here that we are to exemplify solid Christian leadership. Number three, exemplify solid Christian leadership. You see, the younger future leaders of God's church are sitting all over this sanctuary this morning. And I want to tell you, they're watching us. And let me, let me challenge you to consider some of these questions. When the worship time comes, do you sing and participate during the worship? Because the younger ones are taking their cues from some of us older ones. Are we engaged in the worship? Are you joyful to be here during the worship? Is that seen by the countenance on your face? When you give an offering to the Lord, do you do it joyfully? How do you talk about the church and its leaders? Are you positive or negative? And do you pray? Do you actually pray? Not just before a meal. Do you read the Bible? Do you actually follow along during the sermons and take notes and act like you actually care and are engaged? That God might actually speak to you today through a message? Does your walk line up with your talk? Why are these questions important for us to consider? It's because we are modeling and exampling this to the next generation. So many times a year we have something here in our church called Family Day. And in Family Day, we invite the kindergarten through fifth graders to come into church. And I want to challenge and encourage you parents, grandparents, and those who are maybe in church here every week. When the kindergarten through fifth graders are in here, they're watching you. Oh, they're watching you. You may not even realize it, but when they're sitting next to you in the pew, they're looking up. Is dad singing? Dad, dad's singing. Huh. You must really, you must really care about Jesus. And I see mom, mom's, mom's, mom's got a tear in her eye. She must, she must, there must be something special about this time. They, they act so different. And man, man, during the sermon time, dad got out his Bible and it's like taking notes so dad could learn something. Well, maybe, maybe when I'm in here, maybe I should learn something. Maybe I should try to get out my Bible and, and take notes. Maybe there's something spiritual for me in this. You see, everything that we do, how we treat communion, what do we do during the offering, what do we do during the worship, what are we doing in the sermon, we are modeling that to that next generation coming behind us, to those kids. And it's of vital importance that we exemplify solid Christian followership and leadership to the next generation. Because the temptation is to step down when we need to step up. And you have to think, does the gospel mean anything to anyone if there isn't a legitimate lifestyle choice behind it? If there actually is an absolute engagement behind it? How are you living at your home? How are you living at work? Who are you when you drive your car on the golf course or maybe on the ball field? You see, the best way for the church to plan for the future is to invest in it now. Mature Christians, I need you to lock in and invest. 
Younger Christians, I need you to step up and to move from consumerism into being an investor, into being a contributor in ministry. Because sometimes that is your next step to following Jesus Christ and growing up in your faith. It's a time and a challenge where I know that all of us at some point in our life, we come to Jesus and we're consumers, but then we become contributors. At some point, we've got to take off the bib. We've got to strap on the apron. We have to start being an example for someone else to follow. I know some of you this morning are like, man, that is, man, that is big undertaking. It's not possible. Hey, all things are possible with God. If you're trying to do this in the flesh and on your own strength this morning, it's never going to work. If you could do that, you don't need Jesus. But you need Jesus. You need the Holy Spirit. You need the power of God working in your life. Because he will sanctify you and change you. And I'm telling you, some of the best witness and testimony that people will ever see is when they see you change. And it is possible if you'll surrender your life and your heart to Jesus Christ. He's the answer. And if you're sitting here in a walling in a pile of guilt this morning, you're like, man, I'm a bad dad, I'm a bad dude, I'm a bad mom. Don't. Release that to Jesus Christ and say, you know what? From this place forward, from this time forward, I'm drawing a line in the sand. I'm not going back to the old patterns of being unengaged in my home. I see what God's calling me to in Scripture, and I'm going to line my life up with that.